When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... And I it felt, felt I feel right. I was so And I just happy. thought, well... I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Happy New Year and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week, both our stories are about the oh-so-scientific process of trial and error, something Story Collider is excited to put into practice this coming year as we make some small changes to the podcast. If you remember last year, I know it's hard, we asked you to answer a few questions about what you'd like to hear on this podcast, and we're going to be trying out some of your ideas. Yep. This 2023, we're shaking things up from our classic two-story episodes. Over the coming weeks, you'll notice some new voices hosting the podcast, as well as some different kinds of episodes, including ones with follow-up interviews and a more in-depth look at the science behind the story. But don't worry, we will still have our classic two-story episodes and, of course, plenty of true personal stories about science. We can't wait to get started, and we can only hope to enjoy this scientific process a little bit more than our storytellers did this week. Our first story is from Francis Windrum. It was recorded at the Aces and Eights Saloon Bar in London, England, in November 2022. The theme that night was the unexpected. I'm going to take you back few years 2020 there was a kind of tiny little thing going on global pandemic and i was a lowly first year phd student yeah great (laughs) (laughs) i am a computational arachnologist i specifically look at how we can get spider webs to look good how we can get good imaging off them how we can make them show up. So this was my goal. I looked to try and make them show up on these bloody images. I thought, how hard can this be? So with my nine month review coming up where they can say, oh yes, go for it. Or no, no more, leave, (laughs) never come back. (laughs) That's all coming up. I decided, right, I'm going to start out looking at using corn flour to kind of sprinkle on the webs, make them show up really nicely on these images, reflect the light. But wouldn't it be nice if the corn flour was like not white, was like a different color that would contrast? And I mean, you could make it, sure, you could make it orange, that contrasts brilliantly with green, but terrible on brickwork. So I don't know which color to use. So... I go ahead and I buy a, uh, a big old box of food coloring. And I go into the lab. I also buy a lot of corn flour. 
go into the lab with this corn flour. I dilute it down with water, kind of make that sort of suspension you tend to get. Then I add the coloring, mix it all together, mix it a bit more, <laughs> put it into these trays and put them into these massive leaf drying ovens that we have on the campus. So I trundle over there with my trays of this, what something that looks approximately like ambrosia custard. And I put it in, heaving, heaving open these six foot doors, chucking them in. And then I have to come back every two hours or so and just like make sure nothing has burned. So I go in and I break them all up. And then when they're finally dry, a few hours later, I come back to the lab, get a pestle and mortar, grind them up. Then I package them up, good to go. Head back home feeling pretty satisfied with myself. I'm a scientist now. <laughs> I'm a real scientist. I've been in the lab. What could be more science than wearing a lab coat, putting on your safety goggles for the dangerous cornflower <laughs> and, and going in? I'm doing it. I'm a real scientist. But I've got to do, I've got a lot of colors here. I've got to do quite a few of these. So I go in the lab the next day, get more my colors for the day, put them out, make up this cornflower slurry, mix it up. Add the color, mix it up again, put it in the trays, put it in the leaf drying ovens, come back every two hours. And I break it up, I crush it up, go home feeling a little sore, but you know, feeling good. It's taking a bit of time, but that's fine. Second week rolls around. This is actually taking quite a while. Like the water turns out it's kind of hard to evaporate. Who knew? So, I start thinking, well, Francis, you're this, you're a scientist, right? You're a, you're a genius scientist. You're, you're coming in here, you're doing all your science things. Maybe you can rub together the two remaining brain cells and make fire. Ethanol, that's it. Yes, it, it's, it's everywhere in this lab. This, this well-maintained and entirely unsupervised lab. <laughs> There is, you know, there's countless of it. It's, uh, it's there for sterilizing things, all things like that. There's loads of it. No one was going to miss it and it'll evaporate quicker, but it might affect the color. And I don't know if it's going to change the texture or not. I better test this again. So I get around to doing it, same process, but this time with ethanol, mix it up, put, add the color, mix it up again, put it in the drying rack, check it. Stir it, check it, stir it, check it, stir it. It's dry. I grind it up. I put it back. But you see, this time, whenever I check that leaf oven, I open it up and I get a blast of ethanol vapor in my face. So it's more like I check it, I stir it, I slightly pissedly check it, I slightly pissedly stir it. I kind of quite drunkenly check it. I quite drunkenly slur it. I cool it. I grind it up sloppily. And then I stumble my way home. Right. Week three rolls around. Turns out ethanol's actually no better than water. <laughs> I'd wasted that time. But no, it's fine. No, no worries. It, don't worry about it. It's just, just keep on moving on. What about that whole making it show up at night? So I could use UV to do that, but I'd need something that was UV fluorescent. Well, come on, Francis. Genius fucking scientist, right? Let's, let's have a think. That's it. 
riboflavin, vitamin B12. It's fluorescent. It's pretty easy to get. I'm pretty sure I saw it just in the lab supplies. It's a bit expensive, but it's fine. It's already there. But I don't know how how much I need to get it to actually show up and to to glow under UV. <sighs> Shit, I better test it, mightn't I? <laughs> so, back in the lab, week three, all my colours again. I've got the process down, but like it still takes a lot of time. Add different elements of riboflavin, mix it, add the colour, mix it, take it to the leaf driving ovens, open them up, shove it in, close it, open it, check it, stir it, check it, stir it, check it, stir it, bring it out, grind it. At this point, it's kind of starting to take the piss. <sighs> fourth fucking week rolls round. But by the end of that fourth week, Friday, 8 p.m., I've done it. I'm there. Thank you. <laughs> I, I am so happy. I, I go out, I go outside, just check it with this UV torch and go, yep, yep, that's that's glowing. Brilliant. You've you've done it. You've actually done it. You're an actual fucking scientist. I pack everything away and I saunter home. And I think, you know what, Francis, you've you've done you've done a lot. You've done a lot here. You've you really, you know, this is an existential dread moment. There's this whole pandemic going on, like everyone's stressed. You've done it. You know what you deserve. I think you deserve a takeaway. So I go and I get myself a lovely curry. And to go along with this lovely curry, I get myself a gin and tonic. Because what pairs better with a curry than a gin and tonic? So I sit down to eat this lovely Ceylon curry from the local curry house. And I notice the oil on the top. It's kind of yellow. It's actually... Hmm. It looks a little bit like the professional pigments I was looking at before. So I pick up my curry. I pick up my strong drink. I pick up my UV torch. And I head outside into the pitch black. And I turn on my torch. Fuck. Fucking, fucking fuck. There, glowing Bright fucking yellow is my celebratory fucking curry. <laughs> I cannot believe this. I am crestfallen, frankly. I'd put weeks and weeks of effort in. I felt naive. I felt like a little child. What? How am I going to get this past my supervisor? What? I spent four weeks in the lab discovering that turmeric exists? <laughs> I'd, I'd gone down a rabbit hole and unfortunately for me, there was this fox called an appropriate amount of turmeric waiting at the edge and all right, at least I can enjoy this curry, right? So I turn around, curry in hand and the UV torch is still on and as it passes over my gin and tonic... <laughs> It's also glowing, <laughs> bright fucking blue. <sighs> what can you do, man? Like, I sit down on this cold step. I, how am I gonna make it as a scientist if I can't get these basics right? Like, 
what the fuck am I trying to do? Really? My my entire plan was entirely one-upped by a local curry house and fucking Schweppes. <laughs> I go back inside. I sit down with my fucking curry. I enjoy it. It's a very good curry, okay? <laughs> and I still enjoy a curry. I still enjoy a gin and tonic. But I look back at this now, right? A few years later, a bit of hindsight, I'm like, did I really fuck up that bad? Like, like really? When you actually look at it, I yeah, I got super invested in it. I wasn't really, I had my blinkers on. I wasn't like trying, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about this. I was just doing things. Imagine if after the first week, after that first celebratory bit, I went and got my celebratory curry then. I then, maybe this wouldn't have happened. In not taking the time to appreciate the, the small wins, I hoisted myself by my own petard. So yeah, in the end, I can still drink curry. I'm still on my PhD. I'm, it, it's looking good. This wasn't the end of the world. But right at that moment, it fucking felt like it. But we're here now. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> That was Francis Windrum. Francis is a PhD student at Imperial College London working on computational approaches to extracting spiderweb traits. He is also a musician, poet, climber, and ex-chef, and generally spends his time being a little too enthusiastic about the minutia of life. Okay, before we continue with today's episode, a couple of reminders. After a nice holiday break, Story Clatter shows are coming back live and in person to our stages near you. We have shows coming up in Toronto, St. Louis, and New York this month. Go to storycollider.org shows for tickets and more information. And if you're looking for a New Year's resolution, I recommend learning how to tell a science story. If you'd like to learn more about how to do that, check out storycollider.org education. We offer private workshops both online and in person for groups, and we offer public courses for individuals online as well. Our next public workshop is starting on January 16th. Find out more at storyclutter.org education. You can always follow us on social media at StoryClutter. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the StoryClutter at storyclutter.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash thestoryclutter. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. All right, our second story today is from Emily Williams. It was recorded at Smitty's Bar in Washington, D.C. in November 2022. The theme that night was letting go. In almost all things, I have gone through life with the attitude that if there's a will, there's a way. And that's how I was facing the second field season of my PhD. The odds were stacked against me in a lot of ways. 
as I was approaching year two of data collection, I had had a meeting with my PhD advisor. He tells me, you gotta get 10 recaps. I was thinking, this is pretty ambitious, but I wasn't gonna tell him that. What I mean by recaps is that I have to recapture the same bird that I captured the year before. And what capture means is exactly that. I put up big nets in areas that I think my study species, the American robin, a small migratory songbird that a lot of people associate with as the first sign of spring, is likely to fly through. If a robin flies into one of my nets, I safely extract it out, and I take a bunch of measurements. But then I do the most important part. I put a GPS tracker on it. The thing about these GPS tags, though, is that the data gets stored on the tag itself. So the tag doesn't remotely transmit to some computer far away. It means that I have to capture that bird, take the tag off, take the tag home, plug it into my computer, much like a USB, and download the data. So every single tag matters. <clears throat> the reason why I'm putting GPS tags on robins is because the main question of my PhD is that I want to study their migration patterns. So when and if they migrate, how far do they go, where, where do they go, and what influences those decisions? One would think we know the answers to this already, especially given how common the robin is, but the fact of the matter is we don't. And answers to those questions are critical for understanding how birds like robins and other animals will cope with environmental change like a warming climate. So it's early spring, I'm in the first week of my field season, and I've got my sights set on a particular robin that I put one of these GPS tags on. I'm in the front yard of the house in which I captured this bird last year, and I don't see him. Damn! Did he survive? Did he come back? I go up and down the street several times, and I finally spot him. And I see him on the ground looking for worms in between two houses that I don't have permission for. Shit. So I kind of like look around, and then I, I see somebody in the backyard that looks like they're gardening. Like, this must be one of the homeowners. I cold wa walk up to the guy, and I give him my spiel. Hi, I'm Emily Williams. I'm a PhD student studying American robins. Can I come into your yard at four in the morning to catch a bird? <laughs> let me just say, bless all the people who graciously let me work in their yards, because I realize how ridiculous that sounds. <clears throat> Guy at the house on the left is a yes, so now I gotta get permission from the house on the right. I eventually catch up with the homeowner in a subsequent visit to the neighborhood, and she's a little more skeptical. You're doing what to the birds? How is this helping them? After a more lengthy conversation about my research and why it matters, finally get the green light. Bomb. All right, time to catch our guy. On the fateful morning, my field tech can arrive on the scene at 4, and we get set up. 
We set up this verifiable booby trap of nets in the backyard, in the side yards, in the front yard. And then my tech and I go find an inconspicuous spot to hide where we can get good eyes of our nets, but also we can look for our bird. It's still pretty low light conditions, but I'm pretty sure I see him up high in a tree. The reason why we start at such ungodly hours is the fact that robins are awake at this time. You know that bird that goes, cheerio, cheerily, cheerio, outside your window at four in the morning? That's that. So they're awake, but they're usually hanging out high, and the goal is that we set up these nets when robins can't see very well, and that by the time they're starting to fly lower, they'll get caught in the nets. But if robins see a net, it's game over. The thing that I haven't mentioned that makes catching robins a formidable task is they are smart. They are ridiculously smart. So smart that they recognize human faces. <laughs> and they remember. So you know that saying, fool me once, shame on you. <laughs> fool me twice, shame on me. Robins came up with that. <laughs> So we're, we're waiting for the light to break, we're waiting for our robin to do something, and it starts to rain. I swear I had checked the forecast that morning, but as per usual, the meteorologists were wrong, and the rain that was forecasted to come <laughs> hours later started right then, right now, in a fucking downpour. <clears throat> Of course, you don't want to net birds in these conditions because they can get wet and they can get cold and that can be stressful and you don't want that to happen. So my tech and I run out and we quickly close the nets and guess what happens? Like the ever seeing eye of Sauron, our bird watches our every move <laughs> and imprints it upon his memory. The rain, of course, lasted for hours, so we blew our chance. The score was set. Robin, one. Emily, zero. I try the next week. Robin, two. <laughs> Emily, zero. And I try again. And again. And each time I try to bring out my whole arsenal of tricks, and each time I visit, I have to be even more creative. I found his mate, I captured and banded her, I found her nest, I followed them around, and I figured out where all their favorite spots to hang out were, I figured out where they like to eat, and I put nets in all of those locations, and the birds were nowhere to be found. The score is increasingly getting higher in the robin's favor, and I feel like I'm actually getting in the negative. This one time, I thought, well, maybe if I disguise myself, that would fool the robin. <laughs> so I buy masquerade masks for me and my tech, and we wear those, and then we put COVID masks on, and we think if our faces are completely obscured, the robin won't recognize us. Again, I failed in the Robin one. The score is Robin seven, Emily zero. By this point, we come from April to July, 
and time was running out. I had gotten nine other Robin recaps that season, and I was so close to my goal of 10 recaps. I was not giving up on this bird. This Robin held on its back the key to the wonders of Robin migration. How could I miss out on that? We're at the end of July, and I decide to try one last time. Except this time, I have convinced ornithologist friends to do the work for me, because by visit four or five, the robin would literally evacuate the area as soon as I showed up. I swear this bird even recognized my car. <laughs> So this time I actually show up in a different car, I stay in the car, and my ornithologist friends are the ones to check the nets. And after several hours of trying, we catch a lot of other robins, but not the robin. We didn't get him. I had put so much hope and so much willpower and so much effort into catching this bird, and no matter how hard I tried, I just couldn't get it. I didn't want to face the fact that I had failed. The disappointment was raw, and I didn't want to face my PhD advisor and tell him that I not only failed in not catching this robin, but also in not getting 10 recaps for the season. I really hate to be admitting this, but I got outwitted by a robin. <laughs> This wily coyote of a robin taught me that when sometimes there's a will, there's not a way. And sometimes things don't go as you have them planned, and you just got to let that go. In this case, quite literally. Even though this robin will be forever burned in my soul as the one that got away, I keep a flame of hope that he'll be back next year. That was Emily Williams. Emily Williams is a scientist and PhD student at Georgetown University, where she's studying the migration of a common but overlooked bird, the American robin. Emily is passionate about outreach and the accessibility of science and is a fierce defender of the small, underestimated, and undervalued. Before moving to D.C., she lived in Alaska, where she worked as an avian ecologist for the National Park Service. The Story Collider is so grateful to Francis and Emily for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, with help from me, managing producer Misha Gajewski, and senior podcast editor Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including managing director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, education director Lily B., science advisory fellow Edith Gonzalez, and our operations manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Richard Kemeny and Michaela Agabiu, and by Shane Hanlon and Mariam Zaring-Halam, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week we'll be back with stories about misreading the situation, all the shenanigans that come with a misunderstanding. Mm-hmm.
Until then, thanks for listening. Thank you.